We're going to consider 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. That should be evident from what was just read. Um, As we consider this and as we uh, look at it, I do want you to know that I'm grateful that you're here. Uh, Many people are traveling or out and around and about this weekend. We had the joy of having in-laws with us over the last couple of days. Uh, My family has definitely been impacted by the the ravages of, of war and the sadness that comes with losing loved ones. And so a weekend like this is an especially good time to pause, to think, um, to pray, and to remember what sacrifice looks like. So I hope that you find time to do that over the next number of days. If we haven't met, my name's Lance, and it is such a joy to get to consider the Bible with you um, most of the weeks. Most of the weeks we're together, this is my job. And I sure hope that I can be helpful uh, to you today. I really do. So as you're following along, as you're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, I want to do something that I think is good instruction. I think it's good care for all of us as we're trying to learn, and that is I want to remind you where we are. You know, sometimes the Bible says these words itself. Peter says at one point, you know, it's, it's not a trouble. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. And so maybe one of the ways that I would stir us up this morning is to remind us where we're at in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy has been a letter that is from Paul's heart. We know it's from Paul's heart because he starts it out and he begins to tell Timothy, Timothy, you're like a child to me. You're a son. And this heartfelt letter from Paul to Timothy includes not only his desires for Timothy personally, but that Timothy would have success in caring for a church that lives in a fallen world and is therefore sinned against. And he desires that Timothy would be effective in a church that they has full is full of and that they themselves are sinners. And that, it turns out to be, is a very difficult task. There are all kinds of difficulties that arise. There are things that get out of order. God places things in proper perspectives, proper proportions. And what sin does is it tends to distort and bring chaos nearly everywhere. And so the theme of 1 Timothy, the way that Paul is desiring to love this protege, this son in the faith, is to help him to see what order could look like. Chapters 1 through 5 have shown us all different areas of life that need to be set in order. And now, this beginning of chapter 6, I think that one of the things that Timothy is going to learn from Paul is what creates chaos. Things that need to be avoided so that when you're putting something in order, they're not getting constantly knocked down. All of us have likely had the experience either ourselves or watching, at least in my case, my children try to put things together or hold on to things all the while, knocking more things over. You ever tried to pick up too much laundry and every time you bend over to pick up one thing, another one spills out? It's a never-ending cycle. There's a story of Greek mythology but a non-stop pushing of a boulder up the, the hill, and it just keeps coming back down again, again, and again, and again. And what I wonder is if Timothy needs to be encouraged, because sometimes life can feel like that. So you just get things sorted out. You just put things in order, and then the next thing you know, it's back. I'm not going to complain, but sometimes I clean my garage, and then my kids go in there. And I think to myself, I just put this in order. How is this possible? We only had, the last I checked, four scooters. Why are there 77 of them 
all blocking my car's spot in the garage. Because sometimes in order to keep things in order, or in order to put things properly in order, you also need to put up fences. You need to put in place some warnings, some things that you need to think about that cause chaos. You need to get to the root of the matter. And 1 Timothy chapter 6 is going to be right at the root of some of the difficulties that we encounter in this world, some of the ways that chaos will create disorder. We've mentioned this numerous times before, but one of the reasons that we love to teach through books of the Bible is because you can't just sort of gloss over. You can't look away. You can't highlight or maybe ignore things that you either love or don't love. And I'm going to have to say that these first 10 verses of chapter 6 are going to show us that. You see, Paul understands, and as he tells Timothy, that when he's attempting to put things in order in a world, what he's going to find in the world is anything but order, and he's going to have to address very difficult topics, very difficult things. And so this morning, three major topics that come to us in the Bible, and so we're going to address them. We're not going to shrink back. We're not going to be able to solve them, of course, but we're not going to shrink back because they're here for us, and this is for our instruction. Here's three major topics, three things to keep in mind, things that are chaos-inducing in our world, and they provide a bit of a sketch, a bit of an outline for us. It is slavery, it is conspiracy, and it is greed. So, we have our work cut out for us. All I need to do in the next little bit of time is consider with you what Paul says to Timothy. Here's what you do. If you want order in the church, if you want to teach people how to live in the way that God designed them to live, all you need to do for a moment is to remind them and to help them live through these circumstances, live through the horrors of slavery, try to avoid and push back the temptations of conspiracy, and then also watch out for greed. Any one of these topics is enough to make someone who's instructing want to be very careful. And I'm going to try, because they're here for us in this order in Scripture, I'm going to try to consider them, thoughtfully consider them, all in the next little bit of time. So are we ready? Should we talk? Should we think? First area of disorder in the world that Paul says, look, Timothy, here's the thing, not only is there disorder in people's own hearts and in the church that you're dealing with, but they're also being impacted by the disorder of the world, and one of the first and the most blatant and the most obvious is this idea that there is slavery. Verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 6 let, says, let all who under a yoke as bondservants. Now, this word bondservants is translated in many different ways throughout the Bible, and I'm guessing that your version, no matter what it is, also wrestles with, well, how do we do this? Sometimes it is put as servant, sometimes bondservant, many times slave. It seems to be here that what Paul's referencing is a kind of slavery that would have been somewhat legal in nature, not necessarily just service, especially with the addition of the phrase before it, under a yoke. That is, of course, the kind of thing that you would put on animals as they worked for you. So not only that they were forced into this kind of slavery, but they were bounded by a kind of work and they would have had some sense of being owned by their circumstances. So the question right at the outset is, what is Paul going to tell Timothy? To those Christians who have 
found forgiveness and freedom, ultimate freedom, depth of freedom in Christ, and yet their circumstances in this world are anything but. What should Timothy say to Christians who are discovering and realizing the order of life under God's rule, but then step out and encounter a world that is anything but ordered and anything but under God's rule? Now, there's a couple of things that I think could be said about bond service in Scripture. And one of the first things that you might be thinking as you've read through this is that oftentimes, especially from our perspective, having lived on the other side of the horrors of chattel slavery that marred centuries of the founding of our nation and whose impacts and effects continue on in a myriad of ways that we barely even understand, Living on the other side of that, the, most, the instinct that most people have upon reading these verses is that the Bible could have been a lot more strong. Some people would say, well, I have a difficulty with Scripture because when it says that they should regard masters as worthy of honor, I think that is just totally wrong and terrible. In fact, it is true that some bad Christians, and I would say that from the outset, bad Christian teaching and Christians who have compromised in their desires have, in fact, used passages like this in the past to justify a horrid institution. And so, there are people who would consider all of these facts, and they read this, and they say something like this, I wish the Bible had been stronger on slavery. Why doesn't it just condemn it outright? Why doesn't Paul say something like this to Timothy? Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard themselves as free and leave. Why wouldn't Paul say, Timothy, try to take up arms if you must? Why doesn't Paul say, Timothy, as much as you possibly can, condemn and bring guilt and shame on this institution? Now, those are legitimate questions and ones that I have heard before and had conversations with and may have come to mind even as you read passages like this. And what I want to do is I want to, of course, not all of my own accord, have borrowed from many different places as we've read through and perhaps reasons or things that would have been going through Paul's mind as he, as he writes this. And in my mind, at least to, to me, they help to temper that instinct of why didn't the Bible say X, Y, or Z? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through and I'm going to give some thoughts on bond service in Scripture and why it is that especially here what is being pressed, it seems like two different categories of people. It says, some of you are slaves and you're underneath masters who are not Christians. And you should see them as worthy of honor and you should be careful so that the gospel is not hidden or distracted from. Some of you also will be slaves and bond servants and you will have master, masters who are brothers in Christ who are Christians, and you must serve them all the better. These two groups that Paul's speaking to, here's some thoughts on the instruction and the way that it is pressed. The first thing to keep in mind to remember, one of the reasons that this perhaps feels a little bit different than, than our system, is to remember that in Scripture, in fact, in most of, much of the known world throughout history, the concept of bond service or slavery was not specifically tied to race. 
And one of the most insidious, one of the most ongoing and difficult things to untangle about our history of slavery is that it was tied so deeply with race. And that tying of slavery to race in our context was so unbelievably, it was such an unbelievable rejection of the image of God in all human beings that there is a kind of grievous nature to that that I do not believe was present all of the time in slavery throughout the known world. It was not always and only about race. Specifically in the American experiment, it was. And that is, in our minds, as we read a verse like this, I do not believe that it would have been Paul or Timothy's mind at the outset. So, slavery is one kind of sin, But race-based slavery is another kind of sin altogether. It's a sin upon a sin, a multiplication of grievous sin. And that is likely not the case, at least in much of what Scripture speaks to. A second reason that the Bible does not perhaps say all that could be said about slavery, especially as we think about it, is to remember that Paul's message or his point to Timothy And again, this is the Word of God, and so our level of agreement with the tact taken doesn't really come into play all that much. But Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, remember that our primary goal in the things that we're doing as we carry Christ around to this world, the primary goal is spiritual. And please do not, in the hearing of this, and I'm just aware, and I just want to be bold about it, I'm just aware how fraught this topic is. And everyone is weighing words, and they're wondering, well, what does he mean by this? And I'm going to get to the craving of controversy in a second, so maybe we can undo some of that. I'm aware of that. And I just want to make sure here, when I say the primary goal of the New Testament, the primary goal of Paul, the primary goal that Timothy would have had two people who were in this horrible institution in place, the primary goal was spiritual. That was the mission that they were on. Now, by saying the word primary, I am not saying that there are not wonderful benefits and expected benefits and fruits of spiritual change. Political and social change always, by necessity, always will follow authentic spiritual change. We pray, God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We believe that there will be a God-ordained kingdom that will bring every single bit of political and social change because spiritual change inevitably brings those things about. But in this instance, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, remember though, for now and right here, you have a primary stewardship and that is the spiritual nature of the gospel. That the message of faith and repentance and reconciliation with God is the thing that you must guard most zealously. There are other things to guard zealously, but this here is the thing to be guarded most zealously. And I think that that's clear when he says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. It is true that not only does the New Testament not speak in every single way that it could concerning slavery, especially as the way that slavery was going to show itself in the next couple of millennium, but it also does not speak to every political association or social issue of that day nor ours. And that does not mean that the gospel has nothing to say about terrible political or social issues. 
That does not mean that political and social change are not going to come about when God's kingdom comes on the earth. Those things are true, but the message of the Bible is primarily about the stewardship of this message that through Jesus Christ and faith in Him that forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God is possible. And so that is being pressed here. A third thing that is probably in mind, a thought that could help us as we think through passages like this, is to remember that bond service or slavery here, the reason that this was placed in this way, was not always an ongoing life condition. In fact, in many instances, the idea of bond service would have been a favorable alternative to something worse. And now I know that sounds insane. But there were times when you had been in such grinding poverty or perhaps when you were being taken off and forcibly placed into war or circumstances where for the betterment of your wife and your children or a future, there were instances and actual institutions where people could sell themselves into a set contracted bit of bond service in hopes of paying off debt and in the Roman world, which had a problem with slavery, and I, I believe the Spirit can help us hold these things in tension. These things were a problem. The Roman world, it was estimated, had up to one-third of its citizens in some form of slavery or bond service. And many of them had hopes of paying off debts, and if there were honorable masters in a bond service arrangement, many of them could actually attain Roman citizenship on the other side of this institution. I don't want to gloss over the fact that in fact that the Old Testament in the in Israel itself when they either encountered encountered through war or through the circumstances of life had moments of slavery or bond service the Old Testament's command in these circumstances was that every 6 years all were set completely free Now people are sinful and it is unlikely, in fact, it is difficult to find any circumstance where these kind of things happened wholesale, but that is not because of God's instruction or lack of His care or understanding of the world, it is because of the sinfulness of human hearts. But in this world, it would have been likely, in fact, even commanded at times that after a certain set period of time that they would have been set free, not kept in an ownership situation for their whole lives. And this is another one of the ways in which our view of the particularly grievous nature of chattel slavery is not specifically what Scripture has in mind here. A fourth thing that we can say, though at least in every circumstance like here, the Bible does not totally condemn in the way that we think that it could, and many people would say that it ought, think that it could. I want to be careful about using the word ought in Scripture at all, because I believe that these are God-breathed words, and he certainly was not dumb or unaware of the way that these things would land, and we need to give him his prerogative in the writing of it. But one thing to note is, though the words may not be as strong as some believe they could be, in no way ever does Scripture condone the institution of bond service or slavery. It was never part of God's good creation for the world. In fact, all the way back in Exodus chapter 21, man-stealing, the idea of kidnapping someone or placing him under your service 
or found in as a possession was completely and utterly rejected and was grounds for the death penalty. That kind of law and that kind of institution continues on even in 1 Timothy. In the list in 1 Timothy chapter 1, specifically in verses 8 through 10, there right in the kinds of terrible sins that should not be condoned is man-stealing, is the idea of putting someone into slavery forcibly. This was never condoned. This kind of thing is a sin. This kind of thing should not be tolerated. However, and this is one of the difficulties, right? However, what should not be is rarely what we find in the world. We live right now in the middle of the overlap of two kingdoms. God's kingdom is coming, and we have hope that in greater and greater and greater degree, we will not have to deal with the ravages of sin. But we still live in an overlapped part of the kingdom where, in fact, sin does ravage the world. It's the kind of statement one time where someone, I remember someone saying, you know, here's the thing about first impressions or the way that just someone judging based on appearance says, you know, it, it really is true that uh, if, if you say something like, well, they shouldn't judge me based on what I look like. Why does it matter if I wear sandals or shorts? Or why does it matter what my hair is like? They really shouldn't judge you just based on how you look. I remember this guy saying, well, you're right. You know what? Uh, they shouldn't do that but they do. And it's that little phrase, but they do, that leads to all of these tense circumstances in the world. God's design is not for institutions of slavery to have to exist. The idea that grinding poverty could lead to someone to actually choose this as an alternative. The fact that war and the pride of nations and desire for riches leads people to be placed into this. The fact that the image of God could be de denied not only in one person, but an entire race of people, these things ought not to be so. And there is a coming day when God's kingdom comes in fullness where we will be freed from these things. They should not be, but they are. And therein lies the difficulty of what do we do in circumstances what do we do while we wait? How do we hold on? And it is here, I think, when we must test the bounds of our faithfulness to God. Are we patient enough to hold on to the stewardship that God has given us while not grasping other options that seem perhaps more exciting? And it's interesting to me that by the time we get to 1 Timothy chapter 6, knowing all that we know about the pain and the horrors of something like bond service and slavery, that we get to this and everything inside of us says, no, 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 they should fight. These people should die. This should be the, the, that kind of thing that comes up in us. And I just want to remind you that Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, who was quite radical in his response to terrible circumstances. Remember, it was Jesus, after all, who said, oh, are people stealing things from you? Make sure that they're well supplied. It was, in fact, Jesus who said, are they reviling you? 
consider it all joy. Remember, it was Jesus who said, they ask you to go a mile with them, go two. Now, this does not mean that in every circumstance forever, people should just roll over. Absolutely not. But Jesus was quite radical. Wasn't it Jesus, in fact, who said we should pray for our enemies? Pray for them and bless them. And so I don't think it's a surprise that Paul, who has been called by that same Jesus and carries his gospel forth into the world, would say something like this. Okay, listen, while you're in this circumstance, consider a master is worthy of honor. It sounds a little bit to me like pray for your enemies. Pray for them. Love them. I wrote down, and I don't mean to trivialize it, but as a summary here, it strikes me that what Paul is, is he's, he's not saying to them at all costs, fight for your rights. And in that way, he's less beastie boys and more Jesus. And this circumstance can be, can be applied across different areas of life. We ought to do all that we can. We ought to Speak directly, and we should pray and long for God's kingdom to come in more fullness. Less injustice, more justice. Less bond service, more freedom. But it strikes me that what Jesus was perhaps telling those who were marginalized, those who were vulnerable, those who were not in a position of political power, and perhaps what Paul is telling Timothy to press those who were in difficult circumstances, in a horrible spot, Perhaps what he's pressing to remind them is to tell them, listen, there is a hope and a freedom and a life that you have that goes beyond your circumstances. The gospel has to work for everyone, everywhere, even against the worst of their averages of sin. And if the gospel doesn't work for people there, then they're going to give up hope and they're going to find their hope in some other revolution or some other show of power, or some other worldly grasping. And when that happens, we have betrayed the stewardship that we've been giving. The gospel is better and is a deeper down payment than anything that the world could offer. Now, this applies specifically here to slavery. I don't even have time. I feel like there's so many toes to step on in a morning like this. But I think that the spirit of America, that maybe we should be careful to think about this. I would just say that America was not necessarily born on the principles of patience and long-suffering and kindness and deferring. And sometimes, again, I don't know how we celebrate the God-ordained advances in human dignity and freedom. I'm so grateful for them. I will happily tell the story of the advances of the freedom of religion in America. I'll happily tell those stories. Of course I will. But at the same time, I want to watch for a spirit in me that says my ultimate hope is in what America has provided rather than my ultimate hope being in the gospel that God has given that works in any circumstance even if politically we're not where we desire to be. I don't know. So those are some thoughts. They're helpful to me. I'm praying that they're helpful to you. And I'm not sure what else to say about them.
I want to move on to a second category that Paul tells Timothy. He says, listen, this is going to be a difficulty. You need to keep in mind the sin of the world, and one of those circumstances is going to be difficult, especially for those believers who have come to know Jesus under bond service. But secondarily, he says, I want you to consider and to think about false teaching. Now, false teaching has been a very difficult case for Paul all the way through this letter. In fact, what we just read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 3 through 5, I just want to go back and remind you, stir you up by way of reminder, how serious false teaching has been to Paul from the beginning. This is in the first chapter. I don't know if you remember that. It's months ago now. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 3 down through verse 7. It's very similar. Paul must have been very concerned about this kind of thing. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. He's going to say, teach a different doctrine in verse 3 of chapter 6 too. So don't, to not teach a different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This urging in the first chapter of 1 Timothy remains nearly identical in the sixth chapter. These same themes, the idea that different doctrine is being taught, that it's coming from a place of desire and devotion, and that ultimately it leads to ignorant confidence. I think that I said all the way back then, though, some months ago, that one of the worst things to be, in a place that you ought to fear for your soul, you never, ever, ever want to be a bold idiot. That that place of pride is so disastrous. And now here's the thing. Most of us can readily identify the the moments of bold idiocy in others. But here's the thing about pride. It's very difficult to see in ourselves. Bold assertions... He says, avoid those people who have bold assertions about things they do not understand, that they don't get. Verse 4, I mean, you can't say it any more plainly in chapter 6, verse 4. He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He is a substanceless, conceited, puffed up teacher. There's one little phrase in this section of 1 Timothy chapter 6 that I think must be directly hit, and it helps us when we keep things in order, and that is this. I want to reflect for just a moment the idea that the the motivation and the desire that underlies false teaching and all of the, the quandaries that people get into, the conundrums, is this little phrase in verse 4. Right after saying that he understands nothing, it says that he has an unhealthy craving for controversy. An unhealthy craving for controversy. Now, I read a phrase like that and I think to myself, if that doesn't explain so much of our world, I don't know what else does. You see, there's something that we must examine and I believe that we must confront in our own souls. And I don't know if you're like this or you realize it or not, but much of our world, especially much of our news, much of our conversations, much of our... Much of our machinations and our being animated about things come sometimes for a craving in our own souls for things to be chaotic. They tell so many different stories about the way this works. 
News headlines never lead with, mailman delivers mail successfully again. Hundreds of planes landed safely this morning. You see, there's something about the human condition that the world knows well, and that is that when you throw controversy and red meat out for people, they'll crave it. Trauma cells, blood cells, gossip cells. I find it fascinating that for a world that, that constantly teases about and says how dumb the tabloids are, I find it amazing that tabloid owners laugh all the way to the bank. Why are they still here then if they're so stupid and everyone knows it? Because so many of us have an unhealthy, constant, whether we know it or not, a craving for controversy. I remember one of the first times that I noted this in myself. We were going out to examine. I use this, uh, I use this illustration often. You can tell how much of an impact it was, not only in, in me, but in my friend group and in my community. But this destructive flood that came through and caused the evacuation of 60,000 people in my hometown. Tons of my friends lost their homes, childhood farms, things like that. In the moment when the river was rising, I have to confess it was odd. There was an energy in the air that wasn't always sadness. I remember the moments in the days leading up to this potentially earth-shattering flood as the, rivers were rising, the river was rising and everyone was saying, oh, this could cause untold damage. When you looked around town, there were some people who were kind of motivated by what I could only describe as a sadistic energy for chaos. And then I remember going down by the river one time and walking up on the dike system and seeing all that was being done, and you looked out over the expanse of this powerful water coming and the chaos in it. And what I felt inside of me was very odd. I was kind of excited. And I remember thinking to myself and saying to my friend, what is that? This is terrible, like objectively terrible. It's probably going to ruin a lot of stuff, but I feel a little bit alive right now. Like I just kind of feel the energy of this moment and it, it kind of seems exciting, like you want to talk about it. Now it could have just been I was nervous or something, but I think it goes deeper than that. I think sometimes chaos and controversy, it substitutes for real meaning in our lives in a way that is odd. Something about the fallenness of the world means that there's a kind of energy to chaos that sometimes we can have an unhealthy craving for. You can't look away from a car accident. You can't not listen to the gossip. You love a good conspiracy. And this kind of thing is present in us whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And what Paul tells Timothy is, Timothy, listen, there's going to be people who have false doctrine, but part of their problem is that they have a craving for controversy. They would rather believe conspiracies than patiently endure the truth. I see this so often in our day and age, especially over the last year. One observation. I've asked myself, why do so many people so easily and so readily and so passionately dive into controversies and conspiracies. And I think flat out, sometimes things like controversy and conspiracies, especially conspiracies, can be comforting. When something comes into the world that is not easily controlled and not easily explained, 
It is often more comforting and easy to say that this has been planned all along by some force that we cannot see. Because it's far more terrifying to admit that we might not have control. It's far more terrifying to admit that sometimes the world has fallen in a way that we are unable to manage. It's far more comforting, as crazy as this sounds, to believe that somehow you are being you are suffering or being pressed down by some other force than simply pressed down and vulnerable because of the nature of you being a human being. Controversy and conspiracy gains a standing because so many people would much rather believe in some evil force that has planned the whole thing along than for one second admit that the world might not actually be under our control. And it's that kind of craving for controversy and conspiracies, I think, that so easily grasps the hearts and minds of people. More than that, sometimes the thing that God calls us to Quite frankly, it's never actually boring, but we experience it as boring. Sometimes craving for controversy is an easy distraction in the midst of a monotonous life. What God has told us to do is to endure patiently suffering. What God has told us to do is to pray consistently and to gather with our loved ones and fellow Christians. What God has told us to do is to read the Word of God and to remain like a tree planted by streams of water. And here's the things about trees. They just keep standing in the same spot. And I think sometimes if you could get to the heart of a matter, a tree might say, you know, it would be really good to be swept along by a good flood. I'd see some new scenery. And what Paul is telling Timothy is, listen, here's what's going to happen. Teachers are going to come along and the gospel will get boring to them. And what they really want is a good controversy. And they're going to tap into that desire in your people and they're going to want to pull them along. Well, I would go to church this week, but he's just going to talk about Jesus dying on the cross again. You know, I've heard that. I've just heard it. I just, I don't know. I mean, grace again, pastor? I know, you're going to tell me to pray. You're going to tell me to love my wife. You know, I know, I know, I know. And so we substitute long obedience in the same direction. We substitute this concept of faithfulness and steadfastness for the fast, false, easy meaning of a good controversy. And many of us don't know how to live life any other way. We become addicted to the adrenaline of the controversy. I have friends who I just feel bad when I talk to them because I know that what I'm going to hear about in the first five minutes of talking to them is the new thing that now is the thing and they can't believe that no one else knows about it. Do you know people like this? You're just waiting to figure out what have you given the last two years of your life to. They don't know how to live any other way than stirred by the energy of controversy. And here's the thing about this. Though it's tempting, and though it can be a distraction, and though there can be a kind of energy there, I just admit it to you, I felt it in weird ways. Though there can be a kind of energy there, this kind of living and commitment to it does not lead to godliness. It leads to a, a losing of one's faith. Paul gives Timothy a kind of anti-fruit of the Spirit here. You know, in Galatians, we have the fruit of the Spirit. Hey, if you have the Spirit of God, here's what to watch for. Love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and self-control and gentleness. You know that whole list? That's the fruit of the Spirit. Here he says, watch for this. 
If you get involved in this kind of world, over the course of time, here's what's going to happen. Fruit of controversy, quarrels, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. At least that doesn't describe our world very well at all. And so the question becomes, what is the fruit of where you're giving your attention? And we need to ask ourselves these questions over the course of time. You either will be committed to and have a growing abundance of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, or you're going to say to yourself, here's the thing, over the years, I'm just, I'm just growing a little more, a little more uh, slanderous. Here's the thing about me, I used to be hopeful about the world, but I've learned I'm more suspicious than ever. Here's the thing about me, I used to get along easily with the people I knew, but now I like to install a little friction everywhere I can. I like to be cantankerous when the time arises. I like to play a little devil's advocate just to keep things on edge. And this spirit, Paul says, watch out for this. It leads nowhere good. Finally, he says, as though he hasn't mentioned enough difficulty, he says, remind people that they're going to want things. And if you can't substitute a kind of false meeting by controversy and conspiracy and false teaching, then many people will substitute meaning in the world with the things that they can acquire. He goes toward contentment. See, ultimately, we're all seeking contentment, a kind of peace of heart that says, I'm going to be okay. Things are in control. I'm going to make it. I know who I am. And many people, he says, will substitute the contentment that comes from God's work on your behalf with the things that we have in the world. So he says plain things like this, remember you're going to die naked. He who dies with the most toys still dies. Stuff, in the same way that controversy can be, stuff will be, or can be if we're not careful, a false, easy, fast distraction for meaning in life. And it's not necessarily, especially in our world, again, no one should begrudge the benefits that come through diligence and honesty and hard work. Blessing is a real thing in this world. We shouldn't begrudge the blessings of God, but we should watch our souls to see whether or not we are just receiving God's blessing or we are desiring to be rich. That's what he says in verse 9, desiring to be rich. And it turns out that that desire is itself a snare. And it provides for many the opportunities for senseless and harmful desires. It is not just money that is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money. And not only the love of money, but what gets compromised in the pursuit of what you love. It is Jesus himself who said you cannot serve both God and money. You'll either love one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. So it is not just the fact that you love money, but also what is sacrificed in the pursuit of the thing that you love. More than that, at least in our world, you see, when you receive what you have got, you realize that it never was going to deliver what it promised anyway. Because what people don't realize is that money is a subjective, comparative kind of thing. No one really cares about having money. They just want more than other people. 
or they just want enough to get that new thing that they wanted that they couldn't get when they used to not have the money they have now. And I'm just not sure there's anybody who has ever, who has ever escaped that pattern. Anyone who ever said what I really need is $1,000 has said, you know what, it turned out what I needed was $100,000. What I thought I needed was $100,000, but it turns out that I needed a million. But now that I have a million dollars, I just hang out with other people who have a million dollars, and it's just not going to cut it. And at some point, they need to stop and realize that it's not going to be the money that gives you what you desire. What you desire is contentedness of heart. And there's only one place you can find that, with godliness, with the forgiveness of sins, a freedom that comes in Christ. The other thing then, not only does a love of money promise something it can't deliver, but it causes you to sacrifice things that should not be sacrificed. And then finally, in our world, the acquisition of money opens up areas of desire and temptation that you never knew were possible before. I think it was, and I'm in danger of false um, citation, I think it was Thoreau who said that there are a good many devices in this world that have simply been left unfinanced. What an interesting phrase. A good many vices in us that have not been by principle pressed away, not like, I'm so godly now, I'm just not doing that. Instead, Thoreau said, there are a good many devices in this world that have simply been left unfinanced. The idea being that when you have time and things, you might have to actually be more careful about the temptations of your soul. I mean, that's what it seems like he's saying here. This snare produces senseless and harmful desires. I don't believe that the solution is to go into monkhood, but the solution is sure to fight against and not let these things run rampant in one's soul without observation and without being checked. I would say the same thing here that I say about all kinds of vices or difficulties. The first step is simply be properly awake to these things. We have to admit that it's at least possible for us. Is it possible for us that materialism would promise a kind of contentment that we so long for? And is it possible that materialism would become a snare for us? Is it possible that a desire for good things is deeper in us than we've ever thought before? And ultimately, what Paul's going to tell Timothy is no matter how well you've ordered your life, if these areas, if a desire for, maybe if in the first one, if a desire for political and worldly freedom trumps your stewardship of the gospel, or second, if a desire and a craving for controversy and conspiracy produces in you a kind of false, terrible, not fruit of the spirit, but fruit of the ill spirit, and finally, if materialism offers you a contentment that it can never give and opens up a world of desires that you never knew possible, then these things will undo whatever good ordering you've put in place. So, build the Lego castle and then put up the walls. I think that's, that's the idea. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Spirit of God, in the midst of these really heavy topics, I pray, Spirit of God, would you apply these things specifically to us? 
Help us to see, to admit, and to run from the areas that will snare us. Confess, God, that sometimes we just don't see it. We're trapped. It's like a snare. We're trapped by the world. And we ask for deliverance. I pray that through the reading of your word, we'd be more aware than we were before. Help us to reject greed and materialism. We're grateful, God, for the blessings that you've given. We want to work hard and with diligence and honesty and be wise. But help us to not place our confidence in stuff. And God, I pray for our hearts that we would not desire slander and gossip and controversy and without knowing it, substitute the fruit of the Spirit for friction and suspicion and cynicism. God, please help us. We want to know how to walk according to your word, and we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.